Tonight we're going to focus on a verse in Acts 10, which in a sense describes what we have the privilege of doing next Lord's Day. It is Acts 10, verse 41, where Peter talks about us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him, that is Jesus, after he rose from the dead. Now in the context there, Peter is speaking about the apostles, those who literally ate and drank with Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension. But in another sense, we could take the verse as describing what we have the privilege of doing next Lord's Day, and that is to eat and drink with the Lord Jesus after he has risen from the dead because he is present as we meet together and so we are coming to eat and drink with him Uh, not simply with each other uh, wonderful as that is and and if this is what we are doing eating and drinking with the Lord uh, then it is a tremendous privilege but it's also one little understood in some churches Uh, We see this in our our own community. Uh, Communion Sunday is the one Sunday that people will will turn up for, even if they never darken the door of the church the rest of the time. In other churches, uh, of those who attend every week, and uh, of those who seem solidly converted, only a small minority ever actually take communion. And at the root of both these things and various other wrong practices of communion is a misunderstanding of what communion is and who it's for. And so with Acts 10 in front of us this evening, these are two questions I want us to think about. Uh, Both for the benefit of those who who won't be taking communion next Lord's Day but are thinking about it in the future. But also for the sake of those of us who will be gathering around the table uh, as a way to help us prepare before we come. So two points this evening, two questions. And first one is, what is communion? What is communion? Well, the Lord's Supper uh, could be described in the words of verse 41 here as eating and drinking with the Lord Jesus. Now he has risen from the dead. Communion is often thought of as a a ritual, but we should think of it more as a meal. A covenant meal eaten in the special presence of the Lord Jesus. And to see the Lord's Supper as a meal makes sense when we see it against the background of the various feasts in the Old Testament. And also if we look forward uh, to the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven where where we will sit around the table with the Lord and with all those who have been saved from every tribe and language and people. So, So like everything in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper doesn't just come into existence uh, without any Old Testament backgrounds. As one author put put it, God has always given covenant signs and covenant meals to his people. Uh, I have a a small book about the Lord's Supper uh, and the writer spends two-thirds of it speaking about the Old Testament before he gets to the New. 
One of those Old Testament covenant meals uh, which we can draw a direct line uh, to the Lord's Supper from is Exodus 24 uh, where we read about Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel going up Mount Sinai where they saw the God of Israel, where they beheld God and ate and drank. It is an awesome moment in the history of God's people. And yet in the Lord's Supper, we too can behold God by faith and eat and drink. And then there were the, the regular feasts in Israel's history. In Leviticus 23, God appointed seven feasts, which were to be part of the annual cycle of Israel's worship. Uh, the most well-known of these, uh, and the one which is the direct forerunner of the Lord's Supper is the Passover. That's what the, the disciples had gathered in the upper room to, to celebrate with the Lord Jesus when, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And the Passover was a meal which celebrated redemption. God's people being brought out of Egypt on the very night, uh, the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians died. As we sang in our opening psalm, uh, God's people being set free from Egypt. And the firstborn sons of God's people were saved because they had sprinkled the blood of lambs on their doorposts. Because God had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. And we could spend a whole sermon drawing on the relevance of the Passover to the Lord's Supper. Uh, they're both meals which celebrate redemption. Uh, and yet that's just, just one uh, example, one illustration uh, which reminds us that we're to understand the Lord's Supper in light of what's come before. So the Lord's Supper has deep roots in fact, it could be argued that it, that it goes pa back past even those Jewish, uh, Jewish feasts to the dawn of time. Because back in the Garden of Eden itself, Adam and Eve had an abundance of God's provision uh, and there was no sin to spoil their fellowship with God. Uh, so in a sense, every meal in Eden was eaten in fellowship with God. Every meal in Eden was free of anything that would take away God's blessing. So we understand the Lord's Supper in light of what has come before. But we also understand it in light of what is yet to come. Because the Lord's Supper points forward. Uh, there's a little a Puritan paperback by, by Thomas Watson uh, called All Things for Good. And he says in that, the Lord's Supper is an emblem of the marriage supper of the Lamb and an earnest or a guarantee of the communion we shall have with Christ in glory. It points forward. Because after all, did Jesus not say to his disciples, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So in thinking of the Lord's Supper, we look both backwards and forwards. Back to the covenant meals in the Old Testament and forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So remembering that the Lord's Supper is, is a feast, it helps uh, us see how it fits into the big picture of the Bible. It reminds us where we've come from as God's people, if we are God's people, that we have been redeemed. Uh, and it reminds us where we're going uh, and the great banquet we will one day sit down to. Thinking of the Lord's Supper as a meal also helps us approach it the right way. Because a meal speaks of friendship. Imagine you were invited to, to go and eat at the Queen's table, or, 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 or the King's table rather, or, or the table of another earthly monarch. Uh, what, what an awesome thing that would be. Uh, and, and surely we would, have sense, we would have a sense of awe and privilege as we did it. But, but we also have a, have a sense of, of, of what, a, what, a, what a, an amazing thing it is for me to be here. Uh, what, what does it say about what this person thinks of me that they would invite me to their table? And the Lord's Supper, uh, we, we, we have all that. It's an awesome thing. But it, but it also is a picture of friendship. Uh, the, the Puritan Stephen Charnock says that, that it signifies that there's a covenant of friendship between God and us. To eat with someone, uh, it pictures friendship, it pictures uh, any barriers that, they may have, that there may have been, have been removed, have been broken down. The Lord's Supper uh, as a meal reminds us that what separated us from God has been dealt with through Jesus and so we come to the table as his friends. As believers are called in both Old Testament and New Testament. So the Lord's Supper is symbolic of various things. And yet it's not just a, a symbol. It is, in the words of 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, communion or fellowship or participation with the body and blood of Christ. So it's not just a memorial. In, in the, the book I mentioned earlier, Thomas Watson goes on to say of the Lord's Supper, it is a feast of fat things. It has glorious effects on the hearts of the godly. It quickens their affections, strengthens their graces, mortifies their corruptions, revives their hopes, and increases their joy. The Lord's Supper is one of those things that we uh, describe as the ordinary means of grace, along with Bible reading, preaching, prayer. Uh, what are means of grace? Well, they are like the taps which God uses to pour blessing into our lives. Now, God can, can bless us in, in any way. Uh, God can bless us through anything. Uh, but the things that he's told us uh, that, that he will particularly use to bless us are, are these ordinary means of grace, uh, preaching, reading, prayer, and the sacraments. And outwardly, the Lord's Supper is certainly very ordinary. All you need is, is bread, wine, and a cup. It's unspectacular. And yet, it is a means of grace. It has been given to enliven our affections, uh, strengthen our graces, uh, 
mortify, put to death our corruptions, revive our hopes and increase our joy. Remembering that the Lord's Supper is is a meal uh, reminds us that it's meant to nourish us and strengthen us. It's not designed to create faith, but to strengthen existing faith. That's why one of the reasons why it is so wrong for for those with with no faith to come to the Lord's table. It's not designed to create new faith, but to strengthen existing faith. And the final benefit of remembering that the Lord's Supper is a meal is a reminder that it's not something we do by ourselves. It's not just communion with the Lord, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What a contradiction it would be uh, to sit around the Lord's table with one another if we were at odds with each other, if we were at enmity with one another, if there was something festering between two people that hadn't been dealt with. The Lord's Supper should be a picture of our unity. So firstly, what is communion? Secondly, who is communion for? Again, this is an important question because while there are many people in the world who who do take communion when they shouldn't, there are also some who don't take it when they should. Uh, So who should take communion? Well, quite simply, the Lord's Supper is for the Lord's people and no one else. But what about children? who of course can be the Lord's people uh, just as much as adults. Well, we're told that we must examine ourselves and we must be able to discern the Lord's body. And those are things that children are not able to do. Even if it seems clear that our children are believers, we wait until they are at the stage where they will publicly profess their faith and come into communicant membership in the church. Boys and girls, next week we're having communion, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. So why do we not let you take part? Well, do you remember when I tried to explain it to you before recently as like crossing a road? One day you'll be able to cross a road by yourself. But for now, someone needs to hold your hand. It's not because you're not able to walk the distance but it's because it's not safe. There are dangers that it's your mum or dad's responsibility to look out for. Because we love you, we're not going to put you in danger. And in the same way, when we say that you need to be a bit older to take communion, it's not us saying that that you're not a Christian or you're not yet born again. If you trust in Jesus, you are a Christian, you are born again. But just like crossing the road, there are dangers with taking communion, which means you're not yet ready to take it yourself. But we hope and pray and expect that one day you will be able to. In all normal circumstances, children will one day be able to cross the road for themselves. Uh, And one day we trust that you too will come to the Lord's table and sit there with us. But even now, by being there, you're learning about it. And in the meantime, it is good that you come and watch. 
It used to be a tradition in some places, uh, even when I was growing up, not to bring children to communion services because they were longer than usual and children couldn't take parts. But, uh, but I think we can learn a lesson from the Passover here uh, where God tells the people uh, that God tells the people what they are to say if their children ask them what they're doing. So God expects their children to be, to, be, to be there, to be watching and to be asking questions. But they won't do that. They won't ask questions if they don't see it. And so surely we, we want our children to be there. So that they can ask the same questions that the Israelite children did about the Passover. And, and so we can give them the same answer. And talk to them about the God who has redeemed us with a mighty hand. And look forward to the day when by God's grace they can sit around the table with us. I came across something very interesting recently from a man called John Brown of Haddington. In 1730 he was eight years old. and Children were normally taken out before communion was served. But this eight year old John Brown managed to stay for a bit. And he heard about Jesus in what he says was a sweet and delightful manner. And he goes on to say, This captivated my young affections and has made me since think that little ones should never be excluded from the church on such occasions. Though what they hear may not convert them, though it may, it it may be of use to begin the allurement of their hearts to the Saviour. John Brown grew up to be a mighty man of God. Uh, And part of what God used to make him that mighty man of God was what he heard when he was eight years old, watching on as others took communion. But what then of those who who, who are the age where they could come and take communion? Uh, What about those considering coming to the Lord's table for the first time soon? Well, to take the words of verse 43 of our chapter, the Lord's Supper is for those who have received forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, To discern the body of the Lord, as we're told someone must do in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, to come to the table, it requires someone to be converted. So the Lord's Supper is for those who have been converted. It's also to use the language of of this chapter and the previous chapter for those who are walking in the fear of the Lord. If we look back to verse 31 of the previous chapter, uh, we see that it talks about the church walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And surely it's possible for someone to be a true believer, but temporarily not to be walking in the fear of the Lord and so to lose the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's possible for a believer in Jesus to live temporarily in unrepentant sin. It is scary, it is so dangerous, but it is possible that we'll only know if if they ever really were true believers if they come back to Christ But in the meantime, those living in unrepentant sin should not take communion. The Lord's Supper is not simply for those who say they're believers, who in fact may be believers if 
the current pattern of their life doesn't back that up. Whether that is public sin that everyone can see or private sin known only to them. When he writes about the Lord's Supper, Paul warns about idolatry, which is at the root of all sin. And he says, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Verse 42 here in chapter 10, it talks about Jesus being appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to walk in the fear of the Lord means to live with a sense of that. Paul makes that connection in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others. So the Lord's Supper is for those who are walking in the fear of the Lord. Not living a perfect life but living a consistent life not those walking in persistent unrepentant sin so are there sins that that you need to face up to and repent of before next lord's day before the next time you sit around the table let a person examine themselves but the Lord's Supper is not just for strong Christians. It's not just for those who feel that they have it all together. It's not just for those who've been Christians for years. If the Lord's Supper is given to strengthen our faith, then having weak faith isn't something to keep us away. We should come like the man who, who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. In fact, Martin Luther once said of communion, it is given only to those who need strength and comfort, who have timid hearts and terrified consciences and are assailed by sin. So as you think about coming to the Lord's table, are you aware that you need strength and comfort? Is your heart timid? Is your conscience terrified? Are you assailed by sin? Those are not reasons to stay away. They're reasons to come if your trust is in Jesus. Think of the first Lord's Supper and the disciples that sat around the table with the Lord Jesus. There was overconfident Peter and they were all like him, wrongly confident in their own strength, thinking that they wouldn't abandon the Lord. And yet there was only one of them that shouldn't have been there. And that was Judas. Being a weak Christian doesn't exclude you from the table. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, in his classic book, The Bruised Reed, says of the Lord's Supper, It was ordained not for angels, but for men, and not for perfect men, but for weak men. If the Lord Jesus had wanted to ordain the Lord's Supper for angels, he could have, but he didn't. He ordained it for men and women, and weak men and women at that. So what is it that can give us confidence to come to the table when we're, when we're so aware of our sin? Well, it's the fact that our place at the table isn't one that we've earned. 
if our place at the table depended on us having earned it, we'd always be wondering, have we done enough? Are we good enough to be there? But Acts 10, 39 reminds us that Jesus was put to death by being hanged on a tree. That isn't an attempt to describe the cross in picturesque language. By the way, it's a deliberate pointer back to the Old Testament where we learn that anyone hanged on a tree was cursed by God. And so Jesus' death on the cross was a cursed death. But how could God's own son die under God's curse? How could God's own son die under God's curse? Only because he was cursed in our place. Only because he was cursed for us. Only because the curse that was due to fall on us fell on him instead. And as a result, the door of heaven springs open for us. And because of that, we have a place at the table. Or because we have a place at the table there, we also have a place at the table down here. Or perhaps better, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, because we are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus uh, then by faith in the Lord's Supper we have a foretaste of what one day we will fully experience. And the same principle that Peter uses of baptism in the last two verses of the chapter applies here. The Gentiles had already been baptised in the Holy Spirit. And if they had the reality that, that baptism pointed to, how could the sign be kept from them? And in the same way, if our place in heaven is guaranteed through the blood of Christ, if our place in eternity will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then our place on earth is to sit around the Lord's table with our Lord and our fellow Christians. So what is communion? Who is it for? It's no mere ritual, but it's to sit down at the king's table which we are as undeserving to do as Mephibosheth of old was to sit at King David's table. In fact, we're far more undeserving. But this is our blood-bought privilege, that we might eat and drink and by faith see the God of Israel. And so this week, by God's grace, let us examine ourselves and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And let's receive the elements next week as coming not from the hand of an elder or the person sitting beside us, but as ultimately coming from the hand of Christ who went to the cross so we could sit at the table with him and who looks forward to the day when he will drink it new with us, with us in his Father's kingdom. Amen. Well, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the rich provision of God's house in heaven. And we sing about that in closing from Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verses 6 to the end on page 70. Uh, page 70, Psalm 36, 6 to the end. Verse 7, from rich abundance of your house, they'll be well satisfied. The river full of your delights will drink to them, provide. What we have at the Lord's Supper is just a, just a foretaste of the, 
uh, an appetizer, uh, we, we might say, of the rich provision of his house. Verse 8, he alone is the one who, who gives us life. He, is, he alone is the one who works faith in us. And in verse 9, part of the evidence of that will be upright hearts. Uh, so Psalm 36, 6 to 10, the tune is rest, 134, tune 134. Uh, let's stand and sing praise.